Welcome, welcome, welcome uh, to the Excellence Experiment. We are funded by Howard Hughes Medical Institute to build institutional capacity for inclusive excellence and inclusion in undergraduate science. My name is Takiya Robinson. I'm a member of the Inclusive Excellence Commission of the Association of American Colleges and Universities. We have been working in partnership with Howard Hughes in the collective and ongoing assessment and understanding and exploration of this initiative as a whole. And a part of that work that has been a joy for me is there's been some really powerful storytelling that has come through the processes that these projects are embarking upon to build institutional capacity for change uh, within their departments and programs and classrooms. And I'm honored to have the project leaders of the Inclusive Excellence Project at Bates College joining us on the podcast today to share a little bit about their story and some of the things that they are learning as they are taking on this task of affecting sustainable change on their campus. So welcome, ladies. I will ask if we could uh, go around really quickly and have everyone introduce themselves and kind of say your role and what what you've been doing at Bates. How long have you been there? Uh, I'll start with April. Hi, I'm April Hill. Um, this is my third year at Bates, so I'm, I'm new. Um, and I'm the project director right now, though my colleague Paula Schlack started off as director and, and we realized because this is really a team-based approach that um, we got to take turns <laughs> doing, yeah. the, doing this work. Right now I am working as a project director, so seeing, you know, overseeing all lots of aspects, but my main thing I'm working on is um, helping the community conceptualize a, a new teaching and learning center grounded in inclusive pedagogy so that we can you know keep our work in racial equity training and inclusive pedagogies like so that we can institutionalize what we've been doing so that's my main thing i've been working on lately awesome paula hi i'm um, paula schlacks i've been at bates for 23 plus years um, i'm in chemistry and biochemistry as April mentioned, I started out as our project director and um, am still on the team. Um, I'm very interested in working on our faculty development um, before we get our teaching and learning center and trying to make sure that we hit what academic units are most interested in uh, working on next. We've done a lot of work that is um, college-wide, but we think people want to um, narrow in a little bit um, in discipline-specific ways. And so we're trying to work on that this year. Awesome. Larissa. Great. Um, so my name is Larissa Williams. I'm uh, in biology. I'm starting my 10th academic year here. I had to think about that for a moment. Um, and uh, like Paula, we actually started off thinking about um, inclusive excellence even before putting in our HHMI grant. And I was involved in those um, opportunities on campus. Um, now on the HHMI team, I'm focused on academic advising, which is um, very much lacking, especially pre-major um, advising. Um, and so I'm gonna work with uh, the Dean of Faculty's office um, to ensure that students get really good pre-major advising um, because what we're finding is that the students who don't have the most support are the ones that are not getting the best advice about persistence in STEM. And so our most vulnerable students who may not have an understanding of 
how to enter into the STEM pipeline are the ones that are most affected. So what are the strategies to make sure all students are supported, but especially those that may be um, first gen to college or peers um, and making sure that they are well supported. So um, this may be a question for Paula or any of you really. Um, tell me a little bit about Bates College as an institution and what about the institution prompted you to sort of embark upon this endeavor? So Bates has a, a long history. In fact, we were founded with the idea that we would be open to um, anyone, um, which I think we're, we're very proud of. What I'll say is that in the, over the last 10 or so years, my own teaching changed and I started noticing things in my students. Um, Bates really made strong efforts to increase the diversity in many different ways of our incoming classes. And what we were seeing, what I was seeing in my department and in other departments is that many of the students who were doing their doing extremely well on their first exams were the ones that succeeded throughout the whole curriculum. And the students who on their very first quiz or exam didn't do well were the ones that struggled and, and left STEM. And since I work with first year students in Gen Chem almost every year, I got to know these students and they're talented and they're brilliant and had real aspirations for STEM, but we're finding that we were not providing the curriculum or the support that they needed. And so that really prompted me to work with the Dean of Faculty. And when HHMI changed its goals for the grants that they were awarding to work with the administration, but primarily work with the rest of the faculty to work. And so we took a very data-driven approach. We had a um, terrific person here, Anne-Marie Russell, who looked at the grade distributions of students based on various demographic factors and using various models showed that we were not meeting our goals as educators, I would say is probably the nicest way to say it. And when we showed that to the faculty in STEM, uh, I think people re recognized that we needed to make some pretty significant changes in what we were doing, both as individuals and in our broader curricula. And I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, that's definitely, definitely. I don't know if, if Larissa or April had anything to add. I don't yeah. So I think um, the other thing, while we have a really great support from our administration and have since I think the beginning of our efforts to do this, we also had really strong faculty leadership to really um, put together um, momentum towards this goal. And I would also say that there was a change in mindset around the time I started about 10 years ago of a student deficit mindset towards a um, the faculty aren't providing the curriculum and the support that all students need. And so there was a sort of a change in philosophy that was um, empowering, I think, our efforts. So rather than looking at the deficits of the students, which of course are um, due to inequities in the U.S. school system due to white supremacy, for instance, and the way in which that we fund schools um, through um, property taxes, right, which is no fault of the students. And we're, of course, bringing in the best and brightest from around the country that were, as faculty, not providing um, an inclusive uh, curriculum. And so I think that change which is ongoing still, started to support our efforts to build a more robust system for our students. April? 
Yeah, I just say as an out, like I, again, I came here three years ago, right at the beginning of not only of this grant, but of the launching of, you know, so the faculty had maybe, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Paula or Larissa, like six to eight months of like thinking on that data that they saw. It was very, yeah, traumatic data to look at, especially Mm -hmm. regarding race um, and and first gens. Uh, students and so when I got here um, one of the very first things I participated in with many colleagues in STEM like the majority of STEM colleagues was a very intense racial equity institute that you know lasted for an entire semester and I'll just say like I think that was painful for a lot of folks as it is anywhere Um, and I I feel like it was like I was observing a process of, of people, you know, I remember sitting with someone in a group and them saying, you know, this is, just, I was brought up not to see color, which I was coming from the South and that would, it's like colorblind racism wasn't, it was a different kind of racism, as mm-hmm. folks may know, but that was like the first time I'd actually heard a human say that, even though I'd read it in papers, <laughs> that might be a response. And so for me, like it was a really different experience watching how that played out. But I, I will say I, I, I remain very hopeful because people were willing to have that conversation sure. and are sure. continuing to be willing to have those conversations about their vulnerabilities and, and knowing, as Larissa said and Paula hinted to, like that the faculty are the folks that need to change here. And that, that's, that's been heartening to me. That kind of vulnerability is something that is a foreign space for folks who are conventional scientists. Um, We're not really trained to bring vulnerability or to know how to navigate those kinds of feelings. That's something that's usually separate from our work. So tell me a little bit about what has been the nature of this work as it relates to those raw emotions, the way that this work kind kind of taps into raw emotion and what has been your experience of that? April, do you want to jump in? <laughs> I'll start, you know, because as, as I alluded to, I, I had been doing this kind of work at a different institution for a, a good amount of time. And so huh, I thought I knew a lot. Um, to be honest, I'll just <laughs> say right now, like I thought, okay, I, I know steps to take. <laughs> I've done a lot of work. I was a Pulse Fellow in the, South, in the Southeast and we'd done a lot of work even you know, thinking in these areas and at my institution. And I got here and this was a really different place. And I frankly didn't even, I couldn't even figure out how I possibly could fit in. And so I took a position here to be like involved in working in equity and inclusion in STEM. And I thought there's just no chance I can, I'm not gonna be effective here at all. I I don't even know how to talk to people here. This is like a different landscape. And so for me, that was my vulnerability was, I thought I knew a lot of stuff. And then I came in and was like, ah, I'm not sure how to approach it. And so I had to learn really quickly, like to frankly be vulnerable with my colleagues and to like listen a lot more closely to what people were saying and not imagine I had all the answers and sort of, I, I don't know. So. Yeah, it was that. It was hard. <laughs> it, no, still hard. Sure. it still for is hard. It still is hard. I'll add a little bit to it. I think that one of the things that has been kind of a cultural norm at Bates is that although people are reflective of their own teaching, we tend not to show our vulnerabilities to each other, that there's a little bit of a lack of trust um, across 
especially across different academic units. And so trying to work on that and trying to build that trust through activities that cross our different units um, where we're all learning new things and not not competing with each other for resources or trying to say we already do things right, which we all know we don't. I think that's been one of our harder shifts and we're still working on it. Yeah. And I would say, um, I think it's been challenging division-wide. I would say within the biology department, we sort of, we had a um, 10-year review of the department that sort of coincided with um, the the beginning of our HHMI grant and of April's um, arrival here, um, both of which were really important, as well as um, some tough truths from the students about what we weren't doing for them that they were very willing to tell us, mm. um, as well as some major reflective work on the data that was referred to of which some of the classes I taught at the 200 level were the worst um, in terms of um, racial disparities. And so as a department, we, I think, underwent a big transformation to reflect inwards about what we weren't doing and then start pivoting to what we could do using the literature to guide that. And I've been really impressed by my colleagues in their ability to both understand what was going on, own it, and then pivot to what a new curriculum that would be inclusive looks like, and then to actually set forth and do that. And we've done that in the last three years. And I'm, uh, I've been very impressed by, you know, we have 10 faculty in our department, and we're really lucky that everyone was on board to sort of make those moves together and be vulnerable together and continue to do the hard work together. And so that's been really heartening for me and then continue to work on aspects within our curriculum to make it even more inclusive and stronger for all students. But I don't think that's, you know, we are one of the more progressive departments in terms of um, how far we've gotten in the amount of time. And I think um, some units have taken it more slowly. So I want to kind of go back because we kind of jumped into talking about leadership and your experiences. Can we go back a little bit? I got a little ahead of myself. Can you, uh, any of you rather, give me an uh, overview of the inclusive excellence work at Bates? What is this project all about? I can take a stab and then if y'all want to tell me if I messed up. <laughs> but we have three major areas. Um, one is that we want a faculty and staff committed to human uh, to human success. That too, but student success, yeah, uh, everybody's success, right? Human and students, that right. that yeah, that's right. That piece is about like racial equity training, uh, better advising, evidence based inclusive pedagogies, right? So as Paula was saying, she's been working lately on like how do we keep this faculty development trajectory going until we can institutionalize it because Bates didn't have that before. We, we didn't have a history of institutionalized work on inclusive pedagogy. Uh, the second piece is um, really thinking about the learning environment and you know revising our core gateway curricula and it's actually been done to some degree in all our stem departments it just looks different in different departments some folks have worked more on changing policies and practices 
Others have done a more wholesale revision of the curricula, but across the board, I would say everyone's done something to really start to make their curricula a, a place and, and their departments and programs places where students can thrive. And then the last piece we haven't said much about is the community piece for students. We have this a program called STEM Scholars. It's for peer students, first gen students. And, but, but rather than it being like an appendage program, it's actually embedded in the curricula. These students okay. take their first year seminar together and then they actually have course, uh, professional development kinds of courses, at least through their sophomore year. And then more recently, we launched a, a, a peer mentoring program um, in that space. And again, because we're really attentive to not, to we don't want to fail to institutionalize all this work. We're right. sort of working on how we make that community piece evolving. So it evolves with changing times, but so that it's permanent and where there's mm -hmm. a space for students to feel supported with each other. That's kind of, I think, the arc. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's exciting. Um, and it's really, it's not often that you hear uh, institutionalization be a part of that conversation throughout the process of a project, right? So I think that's been one of the key distinctions between the Inclusive Excellence Initiative and other reform efforts or initiatives, right? We're thinking about what it looks like for us to structure this change into our institutional practice. So given that and given your engagement in this project as project leaders, was there a point that you realized, okay, this project is not like other projects? I would say from day one. Um, really? Well, so actually day two. So we actually applied for an inclusive excellence uh, grant and we were denied the first round and invited mm -hmm. again. And I think even before we knew we hadn't received the award in the first round, we knew that we hadn't hit the mark with that and that we needed, instead of writing a grant that talked about all of the great things that we did, we had to be reflective and mm. look at what do we really need to fix or change. And so we, we had kind of hidden goals, I think, when we wrote our grant. We were hoping that through faculty development, we would end up changing our tenure and promotion guidelines. And now we have. So mm. inclusive pedagogy is part of our, our new set of guidelines that are required for earning tenure or promotion from associate to full. We were hoping that this would change the way and our processes for hiring and mentoring new faculty, and they are. And so we have um, processes where we have emerging scholars symposia that help us determine um, where are the directions that our fields are going in and think a little bit more broadly than just, for example, replacing someone who left with someone who looks and does exactly what they had done before and with the idea that we might hit a group of diverse scholars to give us some examples of some really exciting work that might be done in the field. So hopefully that's going to pay off a little bit in changing the demographics of our fa faculty as well. So I think we knew from day one of this round of the grant that we were going to have to think about things differently. I'd also say that our ability to talk about our work and our practices and how it impacts students, why that impact might be disparate depending on where those students have come from, like the ability to do that has been gained in the last few years. 
I mean, just the ability to talk about white supremacy and anti-racism openly as a faculty, um, both within our division as well as within all faculty, like that stuff, even 10 years ago when I came, we weren't talking about that. Some people might have been, but certainly not the whole faculty as a whole, you know, scholars within those fields might have been. But I feel like this has given us the ability to start being more open with these dialogues in a way that wasn't happening um, prior prior to that. Um, and I think a lot of the faculty development, we've had just some amazing people here at Bates um, that have come through to, to teach and train us, um, have really enabled those conversations. I'm curious to know what has been your favorite part? Is there a favorite part? Is there a part of this work that has just sort of been a game changer for you that you would identify as like, wow, this has been clutch for me as a, as a professional? All my students succeeding, mm-hmm. hands down. Like they're happy and thriving. Wow. Even, even during the pandemic, which was, wow. so like rolling out, so I'll reflect back again to our own curriculum in biology, we rolled that out during the pandemic, <laughs> right? So one of the the most challenging academic years I think most in- institutions have ever had, the payoff was so big because all of our students, regardless of how challenging the pandemic was, and of course students from particular backgrounds were even more challenged, they were still thriving. And so, and they've told us that they, see the differences in the curriculum and that the curriculum is working for them. Like in that hands down that that's what keeps me going in the, in this work is them. Is that like unanimous? I mean, like, yeah, Larissa took the the main answer, right? I mean, I I think that's why we do this. Right. And when I, I think back when I interview for a position here and one of the students, um, black woman student you know in in this conversation i'm having with a group of students said to me so this is just you know three years ago but she was a graduating senior and she said you know well i mean what happened is a lot of us we got to Bates and we just found out we weren't really good enough to be here and she kind of started to elaborate now i'm trying really hard not to have tears come out of my eyes because i'm like and then finally i just said can i stop you (laughs) for a second like I don't even know this place because I'm on a job interview, but like, I know that's not true. Mm -hmm. I know that you're, you know, and, and, and to me, like, I don't, I think so few students that are first and second year students that are going through this newer curriculum, that's not the kinds of things they're saying to me. And I just see that change quickly. That is, well, it just shows you, you can, you can change, like, I feel like change is so freaking slow, but right. when I really reflect like that, and that she just was here like a few years ago, and that's not really what everyone is saying anymore, I think, okay, maybe we can do something, like maybe this is real. Conversely, has there been a part of this work that has been especially challenging or difficult? Mm. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> <laughs> Pick a couple, two or three, whichever we have a little time. So, so one of our challenges is that we actually have had um, 
significant turnover in a few administrative offices that Mm -hmm. it would be really helpful to have more consistency there. And that, that has been a little bit of a challenge. So until our current dean was here, we had been through more deans than I want to count in a very short mm-hmm. period of time. Our VP of Equity and Inclusion, that position has been a hard one to keep people in. And I think those positions are both really important for supporting this work and sharing a vision um, with the faculty. So I think, you know, if, if there was a way to keep people here, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also get frustrated with the pace of some change. You know, our students are only here for four years and they're highly impacted by their experiences. And so when things aren't changing in my mind fast enough to impact the students I see in front of me, I get frustrated. So the pace, I think, of some folks' work is slower than what I want just because I know that their lack of change is impacting the students I know. And in the long term, hopefully, their change will, you know, be impactful to many students. But when I see students in front of me that are harmed by some folk and their work and that work hasn't changed, I get frustrated. And I I think, you know, we're a predominantly white institution. And so I think for me, like one thing I notice and I, and I may, I, I definitely internalize it and have anxiety about it is that I, I can only imagine that if I'm a person of color at this institution, like even watching all this play out, like the white people fumbling all the time, like that must take a level of like... <laughs> kindness and (laughs) fortitude and all these things and you know so I just I think that it's like I don't you know if someone decides like "Ah, I'm done with that I gotta move on I don't blame them at all and so it's also relates to Larissa's question about speed of transformation like it's part of me like can we speed up our transformation which I know isn't totally possible um so that it can feel better like so you don't have to watch people performing their sort of white anxiety all the time in a public stage kind of thing and so that part to me is just really like heavy um it's just heavy yeah yeah very much so are there parts like giving your involvement in in this work um, has it changed you or your prof- professional practice in any sort of meaningful kind of way? Almost everything I do. <laughs> really? Yeah. Tell me more about that. I mean, so I came from a pretty progressive family and a very progressive college. I went to Smith, which I, in terms of progressive, they were more progressive on the LGBTQ front more than I think when I was there in the early 2000s on the racial front, but I think I, I, I hadn't really given a ton of thought to this stuff and Mm. shame on me for that. Um, But I remember having a conversation with one of my really good friends who's um, black in marine science, which is, you know, there's very few of them. And 
she was telling me a story about physics class at her alma mater, which was a predominantly white liberal arts institution. And she said, Larissa, you know, I, she went to a um, private high school in outside of Boston. So had every advantage um, in terms of her education. And she said, you know, when I would go into intro physics, no one wanted to work with me because they thought I came here because I have black skin and that's what they, what the college wanted from me was diversity, not because I'm smart or welcomed. And that started me thinking about things, but then really starting to understand the experience of our, of our own students, I think early on in my career here, and then starting to read more, right? And getting out of my own research field and understanding the history and the political science of all of this, which I had really never understood or t taken time to understand, has really shifted everything I do in my career. And frankly, how I also view the world. Mm. It's a very different lens th than I had 10 years ago. That's some really powerful learning. And I think that that's another thing that sort of become apparent in our work at IEC is that um, a lot of times folks who embark upon these sort of reform efforts don't do so uh, recognizing that they have some things to learn. So have there been any other major lessons that you have learned related to you doing this work on your campus or even just in any way? Have, have there been substantial lessons that you've learned? I mean, I, I think one of the things that I, I learned pretty early on, um, I mean, I've been here for a long time, is that um, just because a, something is marked as an inclusive approach in a classroom, if a faculty member is not actually thinking about the students and why they're doing the work and it won't work. And we had for years and years and years, the best intentions where people would bring in inclusive pedagogies without people understanding the lived experiences or even trying to understand the lived experiences of our students. And I think when we pivoted and recognized that our faculty needed to gain more of that. Most of our faculty are, are white, not all of them, but most of our faculty are white. Um, most of our faculty had a lot of learning ahead of them. And I think that we've made many greater gains by having a two-pronged approach where we were thinking about racial equity and inclusive pedagogy at the same time than just saying, well, if you do these things in your class, your students will succeed. Yeah. yeah, we actually, we, we found that out. We, um, <laughs> we had some data, it wasn't racial data, it was male-female data on um, learning gains in a classroom that was flipped. And so doing, you know, flip classroom, you know, inclusive pedagogy, um, and the females did not perform, did not have as much gain as the male students. And so we started looking into literature about why, and it was, if you don't facilitate group work well, then actually you can actually have losses, right? right? So like to Paula's point, you can have the best intentions, you can try and roll it out, but if you don't have an understanding of why you might do it, how to do it right. and how to do it well, it actually can backfire. Yes, you'll do more harm than good. actually can do more harm. Yes. And so with our inclusive pedagogies, 
people are doing readings about how to um, do those better, why, why they work for certain groups, how to then do that and make sure that um, everyone's thriving and, and collect data on it. Absolutely. Can I, I have another example. It's a, a little different, but I, I, I'm guessing that someday some other schools might listen to these podcasts. And, you know, one thing that I've really learned years and years ago, I want to say a decade ago, a former president of Williams College was giving a talk that I was at. And the talk was basically directed to institutions that were not like these elite liberal arts colleges. And, and, I don't even remember his name to tell you the truth, but he worked in like a think tank. And one thing he said is, you're you're all at institutions that are like trying to become something. And the problem when you get to like the, the top schools, which I would call Bates, like an elite liberal arts institution, right? Like the problem is that you, you know, like you're already at the top. And so you become complacent. And that kind of stuck with me even moving to Bates. But what I think I've learned, and I think my colleagues have learned too, is like this kind of like those words, like even, and I just kind of throw this to HHMI too, like the word excellence, the word elite, the word rigorous, like all those words to me. Like I think I've learned they're really embedded in white supremacy and that that, that it's the function of white supremacy to have people imagine that they're already at a space and <laughs> they're we're elite, we're you know, we're the best. And so when you're the best, like you imagine you shouldn't change at all because you don't want to like lose a foothold on being the best. And that is the function of, so to me, I sort of, my eyes have been open to the structures <laughs> that mm -hmm. keep us doing the same thing and make us afraid when we even see that data that's like, hey, people aren't doing well, that make us afraid to change because we think we're already this thing. And that was a revelation, I mean, yeah, it was a revelation to me over the last several years to understand that. And then once you know it, it's like, man, you see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you're like, as Larissa said, it's like, if it's everything. <laughs> so you're, yeah. you're constantly saying like, how do, how do we disrupt that? Right, right. So the understanding structures help us to see the way that they have served as barriers. Mm -hmm. And to Larissa's point, having tools and not understanding how to use them actually cause more destruction. Like you'll stand more chance of tearing something down than building it up. I remember that from one of my classes, you know, as a grad student, I had a professor use that analogy with me and it stuck with me. If you have a hammer and you don't know how to use it, you're going to tear a wall up. <laughs> um, so literally just sending folks out into their classrooms with hammers and we have not given them uh, any insight on the proper way that that hammer needs to be used in order for it to be effective. So th that's, that's really powerful. And it's awesome that I think that's an awesome gift of reform projects of this nature, right? It's outside of sort of this formula that we've sort of been following for years and years and years of how do we go about improving our outcomes, right? It's really been powerful to see a shift in how we see the whole thing. So thank you guys for sharing, sharing that. I want to be conscious of your time and just sort of wrap up with these two questions. If you had to describe your experience of the inclusive excellence work in one word, what would that word be? 
I mean, I, I want, like, it's almost like a, a double-edged sword, and I can't think of the word on each side of the sword, right? Because mm-hmm. I want to say, mm-hmm. like, it's fulfilling for sure, but I also want to say, like, it's hard as hell. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> like, and I don't know, is there a word on that, like, sword? I don't know, but that's really what I want to say. It's not one word. I mean, the word I come up with is aspirational, but that doesn't, so going to April's point, it doesn't mean that it's not achievable and that it's not challenging. But I mean, I think it also means that we're, we're not there. So even if we've made a lot of gains and I think we've made some at Bates, we're not where we need to be. And so, you know, the idea that we're constantly pivoting, that we're looking for a stance that is going to allow us to adjust. I don't think HHMI has come up with the single word. I don't think I yeah. either. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The IEC hasn't. I would say progress, which mm. doesn't put an end to the work, which I think it's important. And April and I talk about this all the time is that <laughs> You get somewhere and then you are aspirational to the next thing and the next mm-hmm. thing. And right. so as, as folks or curriculum move along or as we learn more, you just continue to make progress. Yeah. Progress as a verb, not a noun, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And finally... Uh, what advice would you give to any person or team of, of individuals who are embarking upon an institutional transformation effort? Given all of all that you've learned and experienced, is there anything that you would sort of give anyone a heads up about? So I'd say two things. I'd say um, maybe most important is work on building trust um, across all units and with the administration, with the students. I think building trust is absolutely essential and it's not something that people should take for granted. And then the second thing is, is gather data and look at it honestly, reflect on it and use your data to determine where, where to look for the, I guess the easiest gains and then the longer term gains that you want to make. Yeah. I'll piggyback to Paula Um, you know, I've had a lot of colleagues from other institutions ask, where do you start? And I, you know, that's a hard question to answer, but I've been shocked at how few people have seen their institutional data. And so I think those hard truths are the first thing, because like, you know, the Bates data probably looks like most folks' data right? But they haven't seen it. And like, if people are only seeing, let's say, students in their upper levels, or only in their lower levels, they may not understand the lack of persistence of particular groups, or why particular groups leave STEM, right? Because they're only seeing a subset of students. And so to actually look at that data, I think is really, really important. And then to have conversations about it. Yeah, and I would just like highlight the word like Paula said trust and Larissa said truths. And I say like it's you got to be willing to discover the truths cuz and, and then talk about them and that means you're going to have to be if you really want to participate you have to be vulnerable. Um 
and then frankly be ready to just keep doing work because you will like get knocked down a whole whole bunch of times and then you just got to get up and do it again the next day <laughs> thank you guys so much it's been such a treat to spend some time with you learning about not only the great work that you're doing at Bates, but the ways in which this work is impacting you and your practice. It's really been a bright spot in my day. So I wanna thank you for your time and your contribution to our work to continue to tell the story of institutional transformation for inclusion in undergraduate science. Thank you guys.